This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter. July 2007. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas De Quincey. Joan of Arc. Part 2. The education of this poor girl was mean according to the present standard, was ineffably grand according to a purer philosophic standard, and only not good for our age, because for us it would be unattainable. She read nothing, for she could not read, but she had heard others read parts of the Roman martyrology. She wept in sympathy with the sad miserires of the Romish chanting, she rose to heaven with the glad, triumphant Gloria in excelsis. She drew her comfort and her vital strength from the rites of her church. But next, after these spiritual advantages, she owed most to the advantages of her situation. The fountain of Domremy was on the brink of a boundless forest, and it was haunted to that degree by fairies that the parish priest, Curé, was obliged to read Mass there once a year, in order to keep them in any decent bounds. Fairies are important, even in a statistical view. Certain weeds mark poverty in the soil, fairies mark its solitude. As surely as the wolf retires before cities, does the fairy sequester herself from the haunts of licensed victuallers. A village is too much for her nervous delicacy. At most she can tolerate a distant view of a hamlet. We may judge, therefore, by the uneasiness and extra trouble which they gave to the parson, in what strength the fairies mustered at Domremy, and by a satisfactory consequence how thinly sown with men and women must have been that region, even in its inhabited spots. But the forests of Domremy, those were the glories of the land, for in them abode mysterious powers and ancient secrets that towered into tragic strength. Quote, Abbeys there were, and abbey windows, dim and dimly seen, as Moorish temples of the Hindus, unquote, that exercised even princely power both in Lorraine and in the German Diets. These had their sweet bells that pierced the forests for many a league at Matin or Vespers, and each its own dreamy legend. Few enough and scattered enough were these abbeys, in no degree to disturb the deep solitude of the region, many enough to spread a network or awning of Christian sanctity over what else might have seemed a heathen wilderness. This sort of religious talisman being secured, a man the most afraid of ghosts, like myself, suppose, or the reader, becomes armed into courage to wander for days in their sylvan recesses. The mountains of the Vosges, on the eastern frontier of France, have never attracted much notice from Europe, except in 1813 to 1814, for a few brief months, when they fell within Napoleon's line of defense against the Allies. But they are interesting for this, amongst other features, that they do not, like some loftier ranges, repel woods. The forests and they are on sociable terms. Live and let live is their motto. For this reason, in part, these tracts in Lorraine were a favorite hunting ground with the Carlovingian princes. About six hundred years before Joanna's childhood, Charlemagne was known to have hunted there. That, of itself, 
was a grand incident in the traditions of a forest or a chase. In these vast forests also were to be found, if the race was not extinct, those mysterious fawns that tempted solitary hunters into visionary and perilous pursuits. Here was seen at intervals that ancient stag who was already nine hundred years old at the least, but possibly a hundred or two more, when met by Charlemagne. And the thing was put beyond doubt by the inscription upon his golden collar. I believe Charlemagne knighted the stag, and if ever he is met again by a king, he ought to be made an earl, or, being upon the marches of France, a marquess. Observe I don't absolutely vouch for all these things. My own opinion varies. On a fine, breezy forenoon, I am audaciously skeptical, but as twilight sets in, my credulity becomes equal to anything that could be desired, and I have heard candid sportsmen declare that outside of these very forests, near the Vosges, they laughed loudly at all the dim tales connected with their haunted solitudes. But on reaching a spot notoriously eighteen miles deep within them, they agreed with Sir Roger de Coverley that a good deal might be said on both sides. Such traditions, or any others that, like the stag, connect distant generations with each other, are, for that cause, sublime. And the sense of the shadowy, connected with such appearances, that reveal themselves, or not, according to circumstances, leaves a colouring of sanctity over ancient forests, even in those minds that utterly reject the legend as a fact. But, apart from all distinct stories of that order, in any solitary frontier between two great empires, as here, for instance, or in the desert between Syria and the Euphrates, there is an inevitable tendency, in minds of any deep sensibility, to people the solitudes with phantom images of powers that were of old so vast. Joanna, therefore, in her quiet occupation of a shepherdess, would be led continually to brood over the political condition of her country, by traditions of the past no less than by the mementos of the local present. Monsieur Michelet, indeed, says that La Pucelle was not a shepherdess. I beg his pardon. She was. What he rests upon, I guess pretty well. It is the evidence of a woman called Homette, the most confidential friend of Joanna. Now she is a good witness, and a good girl, and I like her, for she makes a natural and affectionate report of Joanna's ordinary life. But still, however good she may be as a witness, Joanna is better. And she, when speaking to the Dauphin, calls herself in the Latin report, Bergeretta. Even Homet confesses that Joanna tended sheep in her girlhood, and I believe that if Miss Homet were taking coffee alone with me this very evening, February 12, 1847, in which there would be no subject for scandal or for maiden blushes, because I am an intense philosopher, and Miss H. would be hard upon four hundred and fifty years old, she would admit the following comment upon her evidence to be right. A Frenchman, about thirty years ago, Monsieur Simon, in his travels, mentioned incidentally the following hideous scene as one steadily observed and watched by himself in France at a period some trifle before the French Revolution. A peasant was ploughing, and the team that drew his plough was a donkey and a woman. Both were regularly harnessed, both pulled alike. This is bad enough, but the Frenchman adds that in distributing his lashes the peasant was obviously desirous of being impartial, 
or if either of the yoke fellows had a right to complain, certainly it was not the donkey. Now in any country where such degradation of females could be tolerated by the state of manners, a woman of delicacy would shrink from acknowledging, either for herself or her friend, that she had ever been addicted to any mode of labor not strictly domestic, because, if once owning herself a predial servant, she would be sensible that this confession, extended by probability in the hearer's thoughts, to having incurred indignities of this horrible kind. Homet clearly thinks it more dignified for Joanna to have been darning the stockings of her horny-hoofed father, Monsieur de Arc, than keeping sheep, lest she might then be suspected of having ever done something worse. But luckily there was no danger of that. Joanna never was in service, and my opinion is that her father should have mended his own stockings, since probably he was the party to make the holes in them, as many a better man than de Arc does. Meaning by that, not myself, because, though certainly a better man than de Arc, I protest against doing anything of the kind. If I lived even with Friday in Juan Fernandez, either Friday must do all the darning, or else it must go undone. The better men that I meant were the sailors in the British Navy, every man of whom mends his own stockings. Who else is to do it? Do you suppose, reader, that the junior lords of the Admiralty are under articles to darn for the Navy? The reason, meantime, for my systematic hatred of d'Arc is this. There was a story current in France before the Revolution, framed to ridicule the pauper aristocracy, who happened to have long pedigrees and short rent-rolls, viz. that a head of such a house, dating from the Crusades, was overheard saying to his son, a chevalier of Saint-Louis, Quote, Chevalier, as tu donne au cochon à manger. Unquote. Now it is clearly made out by the surviving evidence that de Arc would much have preferred continuing to say, quote, Ma fille, as tu donne au cochon à manger? Unquote. To saying, quote, Pucelle de Orléans, as tu sauver le fleur de lis? Unquote. There is an old English copy of verses which argues thus. Quote, if the man that turnips cries, cry not when his father dies, then tis plain the man had rather have a turnip than his father. Unquote. I cannot say that the logic of these verses was ever entirely to my satisfaction. I do not see my way through it as clearly as could be wished, but I see my way most clearly through to Ach, and the result is that he would greatly have preferred not merely a turnip to his father, but the saving a pound or so of bacon to saving the Orflamme of France. It is probable, as Monsieur Michelet suggests, that the title of Virgin, or Pucelle, had in itself, and apart from the miraculous stones about her, a secret power over the rude soldiery and partisan chiefs of that period, for in such a person they saw a representative manifestation of the Virgin Mary, who in a course of centuries had grown steadily upon the popular heart. As to Joanna's supernatural detection of the Dauphin, Charles the Seventh, amongst three hundred lords and knights, I am surprised at the credulity which could ever lend itself to that theatrical juggle. Who admires more than myself the sublime enthusiasm, the rapturous faith in herself, of this pure creature? But I admire not stage artifices, which not La Pucelle, but the court, must have arranged, nor can surrender myself a dupe, to a conjurer's léger de main, 
such as may be seen every day for a shilling. Southey's Joan of Arc was published in 1796. Twenty years after, talking with Southey, I was surprised to find him still owning a secret bias in favor of Joan, founded on her detection of the Dauphin. The story, for the benefit of the reader new to the case, was this. La Pucelle was first made known to the Dauphin, and presented to his court at Chignon, and here came her first trial. She was to find out the royal personage among the whole arc of clean and unclean creatures. Failing in this coup d'essai, she would not simply disappoint many a beating heart in the glittering crowd that on different motives yearned for her success, but she would ruin herself, and, as the oracle within had told her, would ruin France. Our own sovereign, Lady Victoria, rehearses annually a trial, not so severe in degree, but the same in kind. She pricks for sheriffs. Joanna pricked for a king. But observe the difference. Our own lady pricks for two men out of three. Joanna for one man out of three hundred. Happy Lady of the Islands and the Orient. She can go astray in her choice, only by one half, to the extent of one half she must have the satisfaction of being right. And yet, even with these tight limits to the misery of a boundless discretion, permit me, liege lady, with all loyalty to submit, that now and then you prick, with your pin, the wrong man. But the poor child from Domremy, shrinking under the gaze of a dazzling court, not because dazzling, for in visions she had seen those that were more so, but because some of them wore a scoffing smile on their features, how should she throw her line into so deep a river to angle for a king, where many a gay creature was sporting that masqueraded as kings in dress? Nay, even more than any true king would have done, for in Southey's version of the story, the Dauphin says, by way of trying the virgin's magnetic sympathy with royalty, quote, On the throne, I the while mingling with the menial throng, some courtier shall he seated. Unquote. This usurper is even crowned. Quote, the jeweled crown shines on a menial's head. Unquote. But really, that is un peu fort. And the mob of spectators might raise a scruple whether our friend the jackdaw upon the throne and the dauphin himself were not grazing the shins of treason. For the dauphin could not lend more than belonged to him. According to the popular notion, he had no crown for himself, but, at most, a petit écu, worth thirty pence, consequently none to lend, on any pretense whatever, until the consecrated maid should take him into Riem. This was the popular notion in France. The same notion as to the indispensableness of a coronation prevails widely in England. But, certainly, it was the Dauphin's interest to support the popular notion, as he meant to use the services of Joanna. For, if he were king already, what was it that she could do for him beyond Orléans? And, above all, if he were king without a coronation, and without the oil from the sacred ampulla, what advantage was yet open to him, by celerity above his competitor, the English boy? Now was to be a race for a coronation. He that should win that race carried the superstition of France along with him. Trouble us not, lawyer, with your quillettes. We are illegal blockheads, so thoroughly without law, that we don't know even if we have a right to be blockheads, and our mind is made up, that the first man drawn from the oven of coronation at Riem 
is the man that is baked into a king. All others are counterfeits, made of base Indian meal, damaged by sea-water. La Pucelle, before she could be allowed to practice as a warrior, was put through her manual and platoon exercise as a juvenile pupil in divinity, before six eminent men in wigs. According to Southey, verse 393, book 3, in the original edition of his Joan of Arc, she, quote, appalled the doctors, unquote. It's not easy to do that, but they had some reason to feel bothered, as that surgeon would assuredly feel bothered, who, upon proceeding to dissect a subject, should find the subject retaliating as a dissector upon himself, especially if Joanna ever made the speech to them which occupies verses 354 to 391 of Book 3. It is a double impossibility. First, because a piracy from Tyndall's Christianity as old as the creation, now a piracy, a parte post, is common enough, but a piracy, a parte ante, and by three centuries, would, according to our old English phrase, drive a coach and six through any copyright act that man born of woman could frame. Secondly, it is quite contrary to the evidence on Joanna's trial, for Southey's Joan of Arc, Domremy, seventeen ninety six, Cottle, Bristol, tells the doctors, amongst other secrets, that she never in her life attended first mass, nor second the sacramental table, nor third confession. Here's a precious windfall for the doctors. They, by snaky tortuosities, had hoped, through the aid of a corkscrew, which every DD or STP is said to carry in his pocket, for the happiness of ultimately extracting from Joanna a few grains of heretical powder or small shot which might have justified their singeing her a little. And just at such a crisis, expressly to justify their burning her to a cinder, up gallops Joanna with a brigade of guns, unlimbers, and serves them out with heretical grape and deistical round-shot, enough to lay a kingdom under interdict. Any miracles to which Joanna might treat the grim D.D.'s after that would go to the wrong side of her little account in the clerical books. Joanna would be created a doctor herself, but not of divinity, for in the Joanna page of the ledger the entry would be, quote, Miss Joanna, in account with the church, doctor, by sundry diabolic miracles, she, having publicly preached heresy, shown herself a witch, and even tried hard to corrupt the principles of six church pillars. Unquote. In the meantime, all this deistical confession of Joanna's, besides being suicidal for the interest of her cause, is opposed to the depositions upon both trials. The very best witness called from first to last deposes that Joanna attended these rites of her church even too often, was taxed with doing so, and, by blushing, owned the charge as a fact, though certainly not as a fault. Joanna was a girl of natural piety, that saw God in forests and hills and fountains, but did not the less seek him in chapels and consecrated oratories. This peasant girl was self-educated through her own natural meditativeness. If the reader turns to that divine passage in Paradise Regained, which Milton has put into the mouth of our Saviour, when first entering the wilderness, and musing upon the tendency of those great impulses growing within himself, quote, Oh, what a multitude of thoughts arise, 
unquote, etc. He will have some notion of the vast reveries which brooded over the heart of Joanna in early girlhood, when the wings were budding that should carry her from Orléans to Riem, when the golden chariot was dimly revealing itself that should carry her from the kingdom of France delivered to the eternal kingdom. End of Joan of Arc, Part 2